everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Um, I have a good friend. His name is Jake Weidman. Jake and I met in college at Biola, and, and Jake's an artist. Um, and he's not just an artist. He's like, his paintings hang in Union Station in Denver. Like, he, he is commissioned for um, tens of thousands of dollar projects by some of the wealthiest people in the world. Um, he's fantastic. And some of what we're going to be talking about today, you have to get into the headspace of an artist to really understand. So one of the pieces that he's done, he shot a quick like three-minute video on. I would love to share this with you. Check out the magic and the craft of Jake Weidman. This is a piece that has had many chapters and many transformations over the course of my career. This is a compass rose, but not just any compass rose. It is one that I composed myself, and I wanted to bring all of the different elements of a compass rose together to speak to the Christian pilgrimage through life. Now this piece has seen many transformations, as I have said. It started originally as a drawing on calfskin vellum using pen and ink. Later, I was commissioned by someone to carve it large scale into a solid piece of mahogany. I brought out all of the details once drawn at the tip of a pen, now carved at the tip of a chisel, bringing them forward towards the viewer. It wasn't long after that that I was commissioned to actually have the wood molded and cast in bronze, which is a long and arduous process. You have to first create the silicone mold and then pour in the liquid wax into the mold. And from that, you get another casting where the wax is melted out, the bronze is poured in, and finally, you have this piece secured for all times in solid bronze. So in the center of this piece, you see the four spires that are separated out as a nod to the cross of Christ that is central to our faith. In the middle, you have a ship traveling across tumultuous seas, which is meant to depict us as the sojourner. And it is to say that it was our place on the cross that Christ took, and it was the cross that was for us. Outside of this, you have the heavenly hosts, these angels, and with one hand, they lend a hand of protection, and with the other hand, they lend a hand of direction, and all of them hold this continuous banner, which bears the eight original names of the eight winds as they were coined by Italian Navy men. Outside of that, you have the laurel wreath crown, with its outer leaves pointing to the other 32 points on the compass. This is the crown of victory that the Apostle Paul spoke of as the reward for those who run the race of faith. Outside of that, I thought it was so interesting that you have eight winds and there are eight phases to the moon. 
And in the Old Testament, God informs his people to look to the new moon, to be mindful of the time that they are in, for we are in such a place for such a time as this. At the foot of the cross, you have the anchor with its rope wrapped around its lower spire. And that is to say that we should be anchored at the foot of the cross, penitent before God as we go. And then at the top is the crown of the king, because in the Old Testament, true north was actually outside of this realm and into the heavenlies as the kingdom of God. And so that is what defined true north for God's people. Inscribed around the outside of the compass rose is the final charge to the sojourner, which reads, true the course of sojourners be whose bearings are followed faithfully. So, wow. <laughs> I don't, if you're like me, if somebody said like, hey, can you make a compass? I'd be like, yeah, north, south, east, west. There you go. Jake's an artist. Um, and, and if you could see even just the drawing, the original drawing he did on calfskin vellum, he's one of the um, eight uh, master penmen in the world. So his brush strokes, the, the magnifying glasses he uses to get in and go, if we're going to do bird feathers, we're going to do every single blade in a bird feather. If we're going to do clouds, I want you to see the billow. So we're going to do these swoop marks in the cloud. I mean, you can see the detail in what he does. And, and then I love about a good artist, especially who, one that loves the Lord, when they talk about why, like you would look at that if that was just in somebody's home and be like, that is a beautiful piece. And then they start talking about, well, there's these angels and with one hand they're doing this and another hand they're doing this. And he gets through everything. It's this, like, I love, I want that. It's expensive. I want that in my house. Because every time I would walk past that, I would see that and go, that, it reminds me of something deep. It resonates with me as a human being of like, life is more than just how fast can we get product out. Oh my gosh, can you imagine having something like that in your home? Now, as, a, as an artist, at some point, Jake has to know when to stop. The mediums that he uses, I mean, it's one thing to draw and be good with a pen. It's a totally different thing to pick up a chisel and a hammer and be good at that. He's good at all of it. He's a freak. He's amazing. And, and it just takes one extra hit with a hammer to ruin it. Like, like you came to the end point and you just wanted to tinker a little bit more. Tink, tink, tink. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's, it's, it's not good. That part's screwed up. Now we got to cover that up. Tink, tink, tink. Oh, well, now we got to cover that. At some point, you have to come to an end. At some point for Jake, he can't keep pulling in stuff like, now I want the four horsemen of the apocalypse to talk about the end of the sojourner's journey. And then I want a T-Rex to talk about the primordial soup. And then I, at some point, it's like, you, you have to stop. You have to know when to stop if you're an artist. At some point, the product is finished and you set it down and you step back and you go, wow. The stopping is incredibly important for an artist. And if you've been with us these past couple weeks, last week we end with one of God's stopping points. It's, it's this idea of Sabbath. And that's at the, um, right at the beginning of chapter two of Genesis. So we're like a couple paragraphs into the story. And God is communicating some deep truth 
through this story. Now, a couple other things just to catch you up briefly. And if you've missed some stuff, no, this whole series is building on itself. I would, I would love for you to go back and watch the first couple services just so you have some context for how mind-blowing. It's, it's so, so fun. But we talked about that first week that, that Israel was being raised in, in the country of Egypt. And so they had this idea of the Egypt, Egyptian pantheon and these Egyptian gods of Ra. But the place where they were going was Babylon. And Babylon had this god named Marduk. And they were totally different in, in how they functioned. And then God now, this, the story as we're getting it in Genesis 1, is actually being passed down to Moses on Mount Sinai after they've been pulled out of Egypt. And so we have this group of newly liberated slaves wandering around in the desert going, what the heck do we do? And their God shows up and says, I'm gonna tell you some really important stuff. Here's the book of Genesis. This is how he starts his conversation with who they are and how they're supposed to be. And so we get to the end of of Genesis 1, just the beginning of Genesis 2, starts with this idea of Sabbath. And then all of a sudden, it's like, it's like when a DJ hits a, hits, scratches a record and, and all of a sudden it just snaps you out of whatever was happening, now it's time for something totally different. We get a wiki wiki right here at the beginning of Genesis 2 and we need to figure out why because it's, it's a little strange. So if you have your Bible, this will be a day where I hope, if, I hope you brought a pen or a pencil or when you get home you're going to go grab it. Because I think there's some things in here, if it were my Bible, I would be underlining and circling and taking notes and margins so that the next time I go back to Genesis 2, those are waiting for me to remind me of how beautiful this story is. So um, we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 4. A couple things you need to know, too, before we dive all the way in. I am borrowing liberally today from a guy that I've mentioned before, two guys actually, Rabbi David Foreman, he's a Jewish guy, um, but has spent most of his time processing the, Torah, the first five books, the Pentateuch um, of, of the Bible. And then I found him through another guy named Marty Solomon who runs a podcast called the Bema Discipleship Podcast. I cannot recommend it highly enough. If you get, I think it's to episode two or three, you're going to hear a lot, <laughs> a lot of this. And he will tell you in that podcast, he's borrowing a lot from Foreman. And I've now gone to Foreman. And he's his own trip. It's amazing. But um, we're going we're gonna to run through, not run, we're going to take our time, um, but go through this chapter and a little bit of chapter three. Um, it's, man, I, this is so fun. This is going to be fun. Here we go. Chapter two, verse four. I'm reading in the um, New Revised Standard Version. Whatever you have, you can follow along with it or you can follow along on the screen. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. So right away, it's kind of like, wait, the first verse started with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and this is the wiki wiki, like, now this is how it happened. It's like, we just heard how it happened. We're going to hear it again. Remember, there's a point. There's points to these stories. It's not trying to catalog something like in a newspaper of this happened and this happened and this is a Middle Eastern piece of literature. They're trying to convey story. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and they watered the whole surface of the ground. As a quick aside, if you're like, what the heck is up with that detail? Rain hasn't come yet. If you're familiar with the story of Genesis, rain kind of becomes a big deal about about the time of a guy named Noah. That's why that's there. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. 
Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed, and the Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, we're going to skip down over some weird river talk to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. All right, we're going to pit stop here for a quick second. Why? And it's a little disorienting that God is saying, I'm going to give you the ability to choose something that's something that will tell you the ability to choose. This is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you would think like until you eat from that tree, you don't know what's right and wrong. But God is saying don't eat from that tree, which requires the ability to think right and wrong. So if you're looking at this critically, there should be something that starts to raise your eyebrow right away. If you're a skeptic, and this has been one of the places in your spiritual journey where you go, I I just can't buy it. You're right. This is a confusing piece of information. This tree is weird, this whole choice thing. What the heck is going on? And remember, there's a point to this story. We're not reading this literally as Western newspaper readers. Our goal is what's going on in the text. Let's keep reading. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. (laughs) Okay, what? So he just said, okay, there's these two trees. Don't eat from this one. It's not good for you to be alone. And it, I, can be, I can imagine being Adam and being like, okay, we're talking about trees. No, now you're talking about loneliness. What's go, why, why are we doing this? It's, it's a little bit ADHD, but it's God, you know. We'll praise God. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone, so I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and the wild animals. Okay, now we're in like full seagull mode right now. Like we're talking about trees, now you're lonely. Hey, a trip to the zoo. You know, like what, what is happening right now? What is, what is the point? There's all these dis- seemingly disjointed pieces going on. Why does it keep jumping around so much? That should be a question that sticks with us. And what is up with these animals? Why is that? An, is, does that have something to do with loneliness? Because it seemed like that's what God was getting at. But before we were looking at loneliness, it seemed like God was getting at this question of good and evil. (laughs) What the heck? Let's keep reading. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed that place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, ugh. I can just imagine the look on his face, like finally, all these animals. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Okay, again, seagull mode. Like, oh, this is a nice story. Boy meets girl, first date, yay. 
there's not a lot of times where I'm talking with a friend and he's like, yeah, I was out fly fishing the other day or another friend who's like, yeah, I was at the store and I interrupt their story and go, yeah, but were you naked? <laughs> That's why. Why is that here? Especially in a Middle, Middle Eastern culture where you're clothed. Like, you don't, why are we talking about nakedness all of a sudden? As a quick aside, today's sermon is titled Beast Mode and a Nudist Colony. So that's where we're going. It's going to be fun. Why, why is it important to know that they're naked? That's, a, that's really bizarre. We'll keep reading. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Okay, so now it's like, we're, it's full spin out. We were talking about a tree, then he was lonely, then we went to the zoo, now we're getting naked. Now all of a sudden we're back at the tree. <laughs> what is going on in the story? And again, if you're paying attention, some things you're starting to see like, okay, there, there is something to this. There's bookends here in the story about this knowledge of good and evil about this tree, but what's going on? Also, does it bother you that there's a talking snake? It's, it's weird. Like, as, as somebody who, like, I love the Bible, is this one of those things for you, too, that you're like, this is hard to explain to my friends? <laughs> like, it, this, this snake is strange. Um, it, It's weird that creation was made in seven days, okay? Maybe we can explain that. It's weird that a tree can make you smarter, but it becomes pretty unbearable when all of a sudden our story is about talking animals. What's going on in this story? Keep in mind, it is not a piece of newspaper. It's trying to convey a point. I'm not saying that there wasn't a talking snake. All I'm saying is that for the, for the writers of this and for the hearers of this, they weren't concerned about the fact that we have a talking snake on our hands. They wanted to know why. What's the point of this story? So we'll keep reading. The woman said to the serpent, no. Oh, let me read that first line again because it is important how he says it. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God has made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we can eat from any of the fruit trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. Again, why, why the nakedness? So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden and in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. Why? So I hid, and he said, who told you you were naked? Why are we talking about this? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put me here with, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent, he deceived me, and I ate. And the story continues. This might be a story that you're familiar with. I, I hope that as you're hearing it this morning, I hope is that we're pausing and pointing out some of these different things. This is a story that you're like, what, what is going on? 
this is strange. If we go back through and go, what were some of the big questions that we had coming out of this text? I think here's some of them. What's up with these animals? Why are animals making it into the story? We're talking seemingly about morality, good and evil. This is the story of the fall. Why are animals here? We already talked about them in Genesis 1. What is up with all the nakedness? Did a 13-year-old boy write this? Or like, why are we so obsessed with the clothing situation everywhere? What's up with this talking snake? Why is he there? What is the point of this story? Okay, I think if we're going to answer these questions, we answer them in the reverse order, and, and we'll see them as we pull it apart piece by piece. So that last question, if we want to get at what's the point, um, it, what's up with this snake? What is going on with this snake? It's a weird snake, right? Like he listens. He's clearly been listening because he's heard enough context that he has a question that he's asking that's showing, I know what's going on here. But he doesn't just listen, he thinks. He's, he's clearly been thinking about this for a little while because he's got an angle that he's trying to take. This snake can relate. He can actively understand Eve. He appeals to her desire. What do you want to do? Um, we'll find out later when God is, is, is handing out these curses for like this, this can't continue to the snake. He says, you're going to crawl on your belly now, which would lead us to believe what's the snake doing right now? Okay, so we've got a walking, talking, thinking, relating snake. <laughs> Weird, right? I haven't seen many of those in my time. Why? What is going on? What else walks, talks, relates, thinks? He looks very human-like, doesn't he? But it's so clear. Like there, there's, It's unmistakable that for the author, he's going, this is not a person. Just to be clear, this is, not a, this is a serpent. It's not a person. But what makes this thing that looks and talks and walks and seems like a human being, what makes them different? There's another clue that's hidden in how this snake interacts with Eve. What does he invite her to do? He tells her that she's not going to die. Um, is he lying? It's one of those funny things in this story where you go, how are we tracking truth here? Because God said, if you eat from the tree, you'll die. But Eve eats from the tree and she doesn't die right away. So who's telling the truth? Technically, is the snake lying? No. What else is going on here? He says that she'll know good and evil like God does. Does that happen? It's clear that even from God's perspective, he's saying that was what I wanted to avoid all along. The snake is telling the truth there. But he seems to be twisting it at every turn. It, it seems like for this snake, when God handed down this command, this idea of these trees, it was a really simple, don't do this. And the snake is getting at this idea with Eve. He says, you will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open. And then it says this, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, she sees that it's good, that it was pleasing to her eye, that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. What the snake is trying to do is to say, hey, look at this thing. Don't you want it? Don't you want to just have some? Don't you want what it's going to do for you? What's your desire, woman? Take it. Interesting. And he's twisting things as he goes because will Eve die? Yeah, now she's going to die someday. Is she now aware of good and evil? Yes, but is that a good thing? Has it made her like God? Yes to her detriment. 
There's another clue here with this snake that's going on. And the first time I heard this, I was like, no way. If you were to understand exactly how this sounds in Hebrew, which was the language this was first written, and you'd have to bust it all the way back down, which is exactly what we're going to do. This word naked that keeps coming up <laughs> keeps bothering me. Naked is the Hebrew word arom. We'll put this up on the screen. Arom is a word that it, it's pretty simple and straightforward. It's, it's nude. It's partially or totally naked. It's just naked. Okay. If you are hearing this in the original language, what we miss in ours is that in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals. Crafty in Hebrew is an unusual word. It is the word arum. Arum. And, and, and they have the same root word, this idea of being naked and this idea of being crafty. They, have, they, they come from the same base word. And if you're hearing this in the original Hebrew, what you would hear is Adam and his wife were both arum and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more arum than any of the other wild animals. And there's almost a point, you'd be, you wouldn't be reading this in Hebrew. The first, the, these first hearers are going to be hearing somebody else read it. And it's like they're going to be stopping the person reading. Going, wait, wait, wait. Did you say that the serpent was the most naked? No, no, no. He's the most crafty. Okay, because I thought you said naked. Wait, so then are Adam and Eve naked or are they crafty? Okay, so they're naked. So we have naked people and we've got a crafty snake man. What's the difference? What's the difference between being naked and being crafty? Some of you guys are like, I, I craft naked and that's fine. <laughs> but to be crafty, to be cunning is, is some of the tr what the translations will say. It's, it's beginning to get at this very important idea for this story that you can have something that's plain or you can have something manicured. And it starts to make a lot of sense as you understand what has the snake been up to this whole time. The snake is naked, but with an angle. The snake is showing parts of the truth, but not the whole truth. The way God designed Adam and Eve is here's the whole truth. This is what I want. This is what you're for. This is right and wrong. Boom, done. And the snake comes in and goes, well, there's angles to this. You're not going to die right away. But I'm just going to tell you you're not going to die. You're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. I'm not going to tell you that it's going to be terrible. <laughs> There's facets to this thing. There's a cleverness to his nakedness. And it's crazy that for this, in the Hebrew language, it's got the same root word. You literally would hear that. And as we're hearing naked in our context, they're tying these ideas together of, oh, nakedness and the snake. That's where the story, that's the point. What else is going on here? Why? It used to be, back in the good old days for Adam and Eve, that it was God's desire that was the only desire that they cared about. God said not to do it. We're just not going to do it. And it was this desire piece that this clever snake started to introduce. It was this piece of truth. And as Eve eats this fruit, as she gives it to her husband and he eats, I think that what happens in this story is they become aware of all of the facets of reality. Truth is no longer simple. Who they are is no longer simple. They, it just can't be as plain as nakedness anymore. 
Now things are hidden. Now things are manicured. Now, now the facets, just different things are allowed to come out and they control it all. And it's no shock to us at all that in this story, the very next thing that we see Adam and Eve doing is sewing fig leaves together to cover parts of themselves. I'm still true. This is still who I am. You just can't see everything. Their desires have put them in this place that's complicated and fractured truth. And it's not just truth as we would understand it in our Western context. There's stuff here going on. It's it's fractured who they are. Before to be Adam or to be Eve was here I am. our, Our middle son um, I'm so glad they're not teenagers because I can tell stories like this to y'all now. I'm not going to be able to do this in a few more years. He would run around the house after a bath, tying his towel around his neck, screaming, it's naked boy! And he would tackle his older brother and, and wrestle him to the ground. And they would just giggle and die laughing as Brogan's trying to kick Deacon off of him. There's this, this beauty to how we see this in children that they just seem to have this, this peace with nakedness of like, here I am! We lose that, <laughs> thank goodness for us. But that's what's going on here. Adam and Eve just used to have this like, here I am, here's all of me. Can you imagine having that before the God of the universe and before people? Not the physical nakedness, but just that level of simplicity and connection. Here's everything that I am. Here's all my screw-ups. Here's that's amazing. And now all of a sudden, you, you can only see parts of me you can only see the parts that I want you to see. We're actually, I've, I am just speaking for myself. I'm so messed up that I spend time talking with therapists, trying to figure out what are the parts that I've hidden from myself that I'm not even aware I'm hiding from myself because my shame is so thick. Truth, nakedness, it's, it's fractured here. And it's this devastating part in this story. Okay. There's nakedness. Our next question, what is up with these animals? What's up with this snake? Yeah, we figured out the snake a little bit, but God tell, God's looking at Adam and he goes, you seem awfully lonely, bud. Let's figure out a match for you. Let's go to the zoo. <laughs> it's, what, why? Why are we talking about animals here? Naming is the first thing that Adam does. It, it seems like that's the reason why they're at the zoo is God's going, none of these have faceplates. I need to know what's this one called. And Adam sizes it up. And I don't think that this is one where he's like, oh, giraffe, oh, hippopotamus. You know, I, I think it's something that he's looking at the thing. If, if we're going to understand the story, naming things in this culture was a deeply intimate experience. To, to name something, to name a child, to name a city, to name a well, if you read the Old Testament, they would, the name itself would convey the essence of the thing. The name would tell you something about the thing. It wasn't just a randomly designated title. It's something that told you the meaning. So God has this man. He's trying to help out. And he goes, let's go meet all the animals. And Adam spends time with a giraffe patting it on its cheek. <laughs> he's walking around. He's laughing how goofy it runs. He goes, we're going to call that a giraffe. That, that is not like me. What is he seeing that he knows that? And he sees an aardvark, and he goes, this one's real weird. We're going to start with the same letter twice at the beginning. And, and he names it. He goes, that's not like me. How does he know? What is he seeing? 
And, and I think that the snake gives some hints to us too. It's, it's no accident that they didn't just pick, it's not a demon that's showing up. It's not Satan. It's not the devil. That it's, it's so intriguing that the character that's picked in this story is an animal. Why? What is it that animals do? I don't, I've never met a deer that's like, I'm dieting right now. <laughs> I've never seen a National Geographic where they're like, these animals are in mating season right now, but they've all chosen abstinence. (laughs) Animals do what they want to do. Animals follow their instincts. To use some of our language from this morning, animals follow their desires. And I think as God is bringing these animals in front of Adam, Adam's going, they just do whatever they want, but you gave me this tree a verse ago, and you told me not to do just whatever I want. I'm, I'm different than them. And I can just see the smile on his dad's face as he's like, yes, let me make one like you. And, and the moment that Adam meets Eve, he looks at this woman and he goes, are you just gonna do whatever you want? God said not to eat from the tree in the middle. You good with that? And she looks at him bright eyed and is like, yeah. What are we gonna do today? And Adam goes, this, this is bone of my bone. This is somebody who knows that there can be boundaries to things. This is somebody who knows that their instincts are not what makes them a living creature. Your humanity, if we look at the snake, is not defined by can you talk, can you relate, can you listen. In this story, what's trying to be conveyed here is your humanity, what makes you a human being, is your ability to say enough. It's your ability to stop yourself. You're not a beast. What you feel in your instincts, in your desires, in your drive, Genesis 2 is screaming out as an invitation, be naked. Don't just show facets. Don't just do what you want, but then have this other part of you. Be a consistent, full human being. This is a mental firework show, if you're paying attention. He wants him to know, this Adam, that he's not a beast. He wants him to know that because beasts do whatever they want and he is not going to. So this last question, and you're probably beating me to the punch. Why the tree? Um, I was reading a note on this and it said uh, Geppetto in Pinocchio. Um, Pinocchio in that story for the author, Pinocchio couldn't become a boy until his strings were cut loose. Um, and he was just talking about the genius of that is that it's echoing back to Genesis. Uh, an artist isn't done. An artist can't relate. Jake can't have a, a relationship, to put it in abstract terms, with this, with this carving, the Sojourner's Rose, until it's finished. Because he's still working on it. But as soon as he's done and steps away and it says, oh, that's the Sojourner's Rose. No more chisel strokes, no more brush strokes. That's what it is. Now he can enjoy it for what it is and now it has, has its own place. God has finished making Adam and he steps back and he goes, that's man, that's very good. Now Adam has this agency. And if God wants Adam to understand he's not like anything else in creation, the, the intricacy we talked about last week, he's gotta have a choice. He's got to have a place to put a limit on himself. It is no accident at all that the bridge between Genesis 1, our first story, and Genesis 2 
is this wiki, wiki, wiki. Take a day once a week and enjoy. Don't do anything. And it, it wrecks me as somebody who loves to work because to stop and to hold still to have a to-do list where the only agenda is just enjoy the day. That's hard for me to slow down. That's, that's a discipline. And it echoes throughout the entire corpus of biblical text. Understand limits bring life. Limits make you a human being. As a wise man, Jesus Christ would say, I have come that you may have life and life to the full. How? By knowing when to say enough, when to say no. You're not a beast. You're not a creature. And the defining characteristic of you in that is your ability to say no. I'm gonna bring out the band with some closing thoughts for you today. Do you do what you want all the time? Are you a beast? Because at this point, in our world today, it's not hard to see how this story has continued to unravel. That it's not just fig leaves covering a couple parts, but it's hard to see humanity sometimes. What part do you play in that? Are the things that you need to confess? Places where you've been hiding yourself from God or hiding yourself from somebody else, hiding from yourself that need to just be out in the open because now you know you cannot be fully human and fully alive until you're out. I don't think we should all walk around naked, okay? <laughs> I'm watching you. Um, if you observe a group of two or more people, you realize that if everybody just does what they want, the whole world turns into pandemonium right away. When we chase our desires, when we don't stop, it's, it's just like Jake just continuing to hammer away. It destroys the beauty of what it was supposed to be. So where are the boundaries? Where are the borders? How do we know when to say stop? If it's left up to us, I think we're just in the same spin that we've been in. The only one who can know is the designer and the creator. And that's exactly what Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 are getting at. Of understand that the whole point of the story is this God know him. He's the one who can tell you. As we sing, I wanted to invite you to consider three things. First, this God, he sees all of you, regardless of facet, regardless of what filter you have. If that's true, shame actually has no place because he already can see the whole thing. He loves you. Even with that, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, he sees the whole you and he says, I want it. I love you. You can worship him in the freedom of that. Second thing, he wants you as you are. Yes, you're a mess. It's like having a baby who's made a mess in their diaper. No parent is like, oh my gosh, let's just get rid of the baby. No, you clean it up. You put a new diaper on and you pick up a baby and you go, oh, it's all, all clean. God's saying, I, I want you. Like, I want you. Just come to me. It's okay to bring the mess. Because I can look at you at the end of it and go, it's all, all clean. I just hold you. You can worship a God like that. 
This God, he loves that you would choose to worship him. So the third thing is that know that even in the act of being here today to say no to what you want, to come to a church, this act of standing and worshiping at some sense in you already is this place of going, there's a boundary of when to say enough and it's about God now and what he wants. Bless you for that. You can worship him fully as you are, regardless of what's going on. And that is good. It makes you fully human. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing with our friends.